Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mysteries with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Sample, on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the super awesome science show. This week, we're going to get our feet wet in the world of water safety. We're going to find out about the hidden dangers of water, including those lurking in your taps, and how you can avoid the risk. And in our SAS class, we're going to find out about our environment and its role in water safety. And I do not mean don't eat before you swim. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to get your mind hydrated on the risks we face when it comes to H2O. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Let's get one thing straight. Water is not just a need for survival. It is a human right. And it needs to be clean and safe. But for over 2 million people, that simply is not the case. What's worse is there are many in Canada who do not have access to clean water. You might even be one of them. Have you ever experienced a boil water order? According to the website watertoday.ca, there are hundreds going on at any given moment. How about warnings not to consume water for any reason whatsoever? There are over three dozen happening across this country. What about those occasional breaks in the treatment system that lead to a complete lack of any water? Whenever you hear of a water main break, you know someone has just lost their access. Then there's Walkerton, Ontario. Back in 2000, a failure of the water treatment system left over 2,000 people infected with a dangerous bacterial infection. And of those, six died. I know when we talk about that phrase, don't drink the water, we're talking about travel hotspots like Mexico, but the reality is that this phrase can be applied much closer to home. We're talking Flint, Michigan, where they have lived without safe water for years. We're talking about First Nations communities like Attawapiskat, which has been dealing with supply, treatment, and distribution challenges since the early 1990s. We're even talking about a hospital in British Columbia, which earlier this year had to rely on bottled water for months. While most of us may be sitting easy knowing we can use the water coming from our taps, it is becoming clear that this luxury is at risk and we need to be paying more attention. Our first guest has been working hard to find the answers to the questions we have right now and the ones we have yet to ask. Her name is Natalie Hull and she is an assistant professor of civil, environmental and geodetic engineering at The Ohio State University. Why is drinking raw water so unsafe these days, whether it's at home or abroad? The main thing we need to worry about what makes raw water so unsafe is enteric pathogens. They get into our water because of improper management of human and animal fecal waste. And if you look in developing communities, you can see that most illnesses that occur there are due to poor water and sanitation conditions. 
And this is beside the fact that apart from worrying about these enteric pathogens, we also have tons of chemicals that we need to worry about in industrialized nations that are entering into our raw water sources. So take us through that process. How do we deliver safe water to the homes? So the advent of water treatment and providing it at a larger scale to people in their homes started as early as the 1800s with the introduction of the simple process of just filtering water through sand. Later on in the early 1900s, we started to chlorinate water, and these two simple processes using filtration and chlorine, chlorine bleach, these have saved countless lives by preventing diseases. Aside from these two simple processes of water treatment, we we can think from the source to the tap. So there are many different water sources. We can start with surface water, and this includes things like lakes, rivers, streams, reservoirs, the ocean. You can also think about different groundwater sources. This includes things like a pristine, protected aquifer deep beneath the surface of the the ground. Or there can be more shallow aquifers that are under the direct influence of surface water, which means that surface water that can easily be polluted by human processes can percolate down through the soil and contaminate that groundwater. From these sources, we take our water through various water treatment processes, and the most common is known as conventional water treatment. Before filtration, we add a chemical that causes particles in our source water to stick together and form heavy clumps so that they settle out and clarify the water before filtration and chlorination. So that chlorination step, that's known as disinfection. So we're removing the potential for our water to cause an infection. So after disinfection, we send our water through miles and miles of buried pipes to homes, buildings, and eventually through building plumbing to your tap or your shower or your dishwasher. And that's where you can be exposed to treated drinking water. We're no longer guaranteed in many places in the industrialized or developed world that the water that's coming out of that tap or or that shower head is particularly safe. What's happened over the years? Is this just a factor of urban decay Or is there something else that's going on? So the funny thing is that not much actually has changed since the early 1900s. By and large, in industrialized communities, our drinking water treatment processes aren't that much fancier than they used to be. We are optimizing our water treatments as we better understand the emerging chemical pollutants and the impacts they can have on our health. And some of those pollutants that we're starting to worry about are things like pharmaceutical chemicals, heavy metals, pesticides, plastics. And as we begin to understand these pollutants better, we have developed more advanced treatments, such as ozone, which does a better job of treating some of these chemicals, advanced filtration processes, where we don't just use sand anymore, we use very high-tech membranes, or we even use reverse osmosis to desalinate water. But these, these advanced treatments have focused a lot on combating the chemicals in our water. But an area that we're lagging behind 
other fields in understanding our water ecosystem is looking at the microbiome of our drinking water treatment and distribution systems. We know that the human body has a microbiome. Cats have a microbiome. And we know that there are certain environmental places like buildings that have microbiomes. Is there a water pipeline microbiome? We know there is. It floats in the water. It also attaches to the surface of all of those pipes and microbes live in biofilms. And these biofilms and the microbes that live in the water, they are the source of potential pathogens or potentially harmless microorganisms that we drink. But they're also the source of some emerging concerns like opportunistic pathogens that can infect people with weakened immune systems and also things like antimicrobial resistance that is emerging due to increased use of antibiotics and various disinfectants. It just sounds as if we're using chemicals to try and take care of the bugs. And now all of a sudden we're realizing that the chemicals themselves are causing just as much, if not more, of a problem than the bugs themselves. Yeah, so these chemicals that we're using, they're, they're inducing selective pressure on the microbial populations that live in our water systems. Things like chlorine, it even has a selective pressure that it applies. Every treatment that we apply to our water causes shifts in the microbial communities that ultimate, ultimately impacts the microbes that we get exposed to at the tap. Really, when we're talking about tap water being safe to drink, it does come with a number of conditions. And at the moment, we really don't yet know how those conditions are going to affect us from day to day to day. Exactly. And some of the conditions that we're most worried about understanding are those due to climate change and the impacts that those are having on our society at large. So climate change is causing differences in temperature and weather patterns, and this has a huge impact on our water sources. And the microbes that live in our water sources, they transverse the treatment process and through our distribution process, along with any shifts that occur to their populations and end up in our taps. And then at the same time, we have the effect on society of climate change, where people are moving towards cities or they're changing where they live in search of water in super arid regions. And so this means the conventional approach of treating water in a centralized approach and then we pump it out, it's just not going to work anymore because the pipe structure is going to be too complex or the population distribution just won't work with that type of system. So really we need to move toward a more decentralized approach for treating drinking water so that we can protect ourselves from contaminants closer to where we're exposed. So really, we need to have a shift away from the large plant structure providing us all this pressurized water as we now have today, and instead start thinking about the point at which we're coming into contact with that water, whether it be our tap or our garden hose or a showerhead. Right, exactly. So managing the water at the point of use is going to be really important, especially for people, those immunocompromised populations that might be more susceptible to some of the microbes. But not even just at the tap will be the place to target to protect ourselves. It will even be using the distribution system 
whether it's a decentralized distribution system or a more centralized distribution system, using those pipes to actively treat water for us so that we can manage the water as it travels throughout the distribution system and not just rely on a point-of-use treatment, but we can manage the water more actively. Improving water safety has been a hotly researched topic, although you may not have heard about it. That's because the majority of work has been in specialized fields, such as healthcare, dentistry, and food production. All three of these fields require significant amount of safe water, and the boiling route, while completely effective, simply is inefficient. Back in the 1950s, research explored a completely different option to keep water safe. It was ultraviolet light. It had been known for some time that UV could damage microbes and even kill them. It only made sense that this light would be the best way to disinfect water. For some reason, though, it never really took off. But now, like vinyl albums, UV is making a comeback, and Natalie Hall has been involved in this area of research for years. Her most recent idea is using UV from the start of water treatment to the point of contact at which we meet it, the tap. So how does ultraviolet light help to disinfect water? So you've probably heard of ultraviolet light in terms of UV rays. You wear sunscreen to protect you from different types of UV called A and B. These UV A and B rays, they make it from the sun and they penetrate our atmosphere and then they penetrate your skin nucleus where they can cause cancer-causing mutations in your skin DNA. The type of UV that we use to treat water, they're known as UVC rays. They don't penetrate the atmosphere as easily, so they don't tend to reach us on our skin. But they have a much lower wavelength and they have a much higher energy, which makes them super efficient at causing mutations in DNA. We use these UVC photons to cause genetic mutations in the microbes that are in the water. And these mutations make the microbes unable to reproduce, which means they can't cause an infection. How would we be able to use ultraviolet light in order to make our water safe, as we talked earlier, at the point of use or point of contact? So using UV to help our water be safe at the point of use or point of contact will be a, a really complementary strategy with some of the existing large treatment options that we have. They could line our pipes, they could be installed in our pumps that pump the water systems, they could be installed in water tower storage systems, or they could be installed in your water meter, or even screwed onto your faucet or installed in your shower head. There are so many potential applications for UVs because of the invention of really small UV LED lights known as LEDs. LEDs just like the small lights that are in your smartphone, except they emit those really powerful UVC rays so that we can have really diverse and basically limitless design of how we can apply these tiny low power lights to disinfect our water. There's no doubt going to be somebody out there who's essentially saying, you want to put UV in my house? You want to put UV in my water? That's not good because UV is bad. UV causes cancer. UV causes all sorts of problems. How safe is UV when it comes to 
water disinfection so that we have that safe water coming out of our taps? UV is really safe for water disinfection. UV doesn't add any chemicals. It doesn't cause any disinfection byproducts. So what we have now is UV that's going to work. It kills. UV that's safe. It's not going to cause us a threat. What about the cost? So thinking about the value of applying UV and these innovative LEDs throughout our water distribution systems and maybe even reaching the point of use, you have to think of it as an upgrade. As a centralized option, UV water treatment systems tend to have higher capital costs than chlorine systems, but overall they're very effective and they are very competitive with other advanced treatment options. And for those people who are listening right now who want to get into UV to be able to improve their water system, what would you suggest that they do? Do they just go out and buy the, something that's already out there? Do they give it a little bit of time? What would be the best way for them to approach UV and accept it as a means of being able to help them have their water stay safe? I think for customers right now, there's actually a tiered approach you could take. If you're thinking about traveling and backpacking through areas where you're uncertain of the quality of water, there are existing handheld UV devices that you can use, and they come with the mercury lamps that emit 254 nanometers, and they also come with those LEDs that emit various wavelengths. So those are an immediate option that I would recommend. It's very approachable. You stick the UV device in your water bottle, let it run for a cycle, and then your water is disinfected and safe to drink. If the water is cloudy, maybe run it twice. But then the other tier of acceptance to UV right now, I would say, is the point of entry and point of use devices. And what I'm talking about here are the UV devices that you might install under your sink or at your water meter where the water comes into your house or in your pump house for your well. And these can contain mercury, but I would say wait just a little bit longer because LEDs are becoming increasingly cheap as time progresses, just like with visible light LEDs where they were really expensive for a long time, we rounded the curve, and then they were very cheap and they're everywhere. Right now with UVC LEDs, we're rounding that curve. So I think we're getting into the time where they're going to be super cheap and super accessible for everyone, but just wait a little bit longer. It's SAS class time, and today we are going to look at the complexity involved in trying to identify why we can't drink raw or untreated water. It all comes down to the overarching field known as One Health. Our guest teacher is Amy Greer, and she is a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Population Disease Modeling. She's also an Associate Professor in the Department of Population Medicine at the Ontario Veterinary College of the University of Guelph. What is One Health? One Health is an effort of people working across multiple disciplines. And the goal really is to do work that allows us to obtain what a lot of organizations call kind of optimal health for people, animals, and the environment. And so, you know, when we talk about pathogens that are spread by water, as an example, this represents kind of an important issue that can benefit from a One Health approach because 
While we're interested in the public health perspective where the risk of disease or illness occurs in humans, that risk is influenced directly and indirectly by animals, the environment, and also by human behavior. So it's difficult to really try to understand the problem without taking all of the different parts into consideration. The idea of using an interdisciplinary approach where we bring together people who have different backgrounds and different diverse perspectives to try to address a big problem in kind of a more holistic sense is a really useful approach. There was a time where we could drink raw water from the river, from the lake, from everywhere. Now it seems we can't do that, even though there are people in California trying to sell it to us. How is water changing? Well, I think, I think water kind of fits into this in, in a bunch of different ways. You know, people certainly come in contact with water in many different ways, and some of those ways are direct. So, you know, we go swimming at the beach or we drink water from our tap, and then we come in contact with water in other ways, which are indirect, and maybe we don't think as closely about them, but we eat food, typically produce, that's been irrigated with water. One of the, the big challenges is that the idea that any of that water might be contaminated with pathogens, specifically pathogens that come from fecal matter, as an example, is pretty gross. And so, you know, people wonder about fecal matter. Well, it's a risk to human health and, and all animals, whether we're talking about people or livestock or wildlife, shed microorganisms, you know, bacteria, viruses, parasites, or protozoa in their fecal matter. And the challenge is that some of those pathogens or microorganisms can cause disease in humans. We call those zoonotic diseases because they can be transmitted between people and animals. And it's important to try to prevent the contamination of water with that fecal matter in order to protect health in people. Um, because otherwise, if you come in contact with those pathogens, it can result in some very unpleasant symptoms like vomiting and diarrhea, which nobody likes to have. How do farms then fit into this whole idea of One Health as it applies to water safety? Yeah, so I mean, we're currently looking at a future where the earth is going to need to feed 9 billion people by 2050. And certainly that's going to mean continued changes to agriculture and especially related to livestock production and patterns and practices. And that has important implications for managing the resulting animal waste and manure that's a byproduct of raising those animals. Um, because we want to really think about strategies to reduce the chance that that fecal matter is able to contaminate local watersheds, which can then subsequently present a risk to human health. It's also important to note that while farms are certainly not the only source of fecal contamination of water sources, they're one that many people think about, given some of the historical outbreaks. Things like Walkerton in 2000 or the spinach outbreak in the United States in 2006, those outbreaks really still are very much on the public radar even now, and they contribute to public perception around relationships that exist between water and livestock and human health. So it's really what I would consider a true One Health challenge. The role of farms is that we have this issue related to pathogen mobility. Livestock operations produce manure. And so we need to really think about how that manure is managed and how we're able to prevent the risk of those pathogens potentially getting into water sources. And that can happen through a lot of different multiple pathways. I spoke about the fact that we eat produce that's been irrigated with water. We swim at the beach. 
all of those sorts of things. And so that's a real challenge in terms of thinking about safety. A number of years ago, I was in Ecuador at the Amazon jungle. I wanted to go swimming in the Amazon. They told me probably not a good idea. I just simply said, ah, probably the piranhas, right? No, the Campylobacter. Believe it or not, there was actually food-borne, water-borne diseases in the Amazon River. So I simply asked, is there because there's a farm upstream? They're like, no, it's just there. Now, how did it get there? I have no idea. But at the end of the day, we can't just blame farms because this is really a larger scale when it comes to how safe our water is going to be. The example you gave, there's a really good example that came out of Borneo in 2000, where you had a bunch of people participating in this eco-challenge adventure race. And these people are swimming and boating and kayaking in very remote areas. And actually, a large number of participants actually came down with cases of leptospirosis after the competition because of exposure to pathogen in the water that they were actively participating in activities in. And so it's not just farms. I think wildlife, lots of different, and also, like I said, human pathogens are are also an important part of this. You know that we have something called combined sewer overflows, which people may or may not have heard of. Sometimes they're just referred to as CSOs. And what that means is that in some cities with much older infrastructure, the sewer system is actually built in a way such that there's only one pipe that essentially carries both storm water when we have a large rainfall event, but it also carries sewage. And when we have events like large rainfall events, those single pipe systems can get overwhelmed with just the volume of water. And as a result, those CSOs are forced. So typically that water would go to a water treatment plant. And when you get so much volume of water coming through those systems when you have big rainfall events, it actually can force areas where they have these combined sewer overflows to have to bypass the water treatment. And some of that actually gets discharged into local creeks, rivers, and lakes without having been treated. And one of the other important factors in all of this is that environmental conditions also play a really important role here. So really, the idea that climate change could be contributing to the fact that we can't drink the water is more than just simply rainfall leading to those beach warnings. There's a number of other factors involved. Most certainly. I think the environmental component is, is a really important one and, and, again, feeds into that One Health approach. Because if you think about it, pathogens have to survive in the environment or in the manure if it is to eventually enter a watershed. And luckily, in for most pathogens, they actually will decline over time in manure, for instance, because of high temperatures. And there are lots of strategies that farmers will use to try to reduce the pathogen load in that fecal matter by increasing the high temperature, increasing desiccation. Those manure piles have high ammonia content. They're exposed to UV radiation. All of that helps to really break down the pathogens. But some pathogens are just really hardy. They can persist for very prolonged periods of time under what we would consider to be kind of suboptimal temperature and and kind of moisture conditions. And temperature is important. Extreme precipitation events are really important. Things like combined sewer overflows. But also those extreme precipitation events are also ways to actually move pathogens through kind of into the surface water. You can imagine that during large rainfall events, you kind of wash that manure. So if, if you've been applying manure to a field, for instance, and then you have a large rainfall event, 
that rainwater can act to kind of wash that out into the watershed. What that means is, is that, you know, we rely on a multi-barrier approach. And that's an approach we use, which is kind of this system of checks and balances and procedures and tools to collectively reduce the risk of human exposure to waterborne pathogens in a bunch of different ways. So all the way from the source water all the way to our tap, as an example. Well, that's it for this week's AskCast. I hope it has flooded your brain with perspective on a very important topic. For CuriousCast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming, and we want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.